once Dave reached my perch, I climbed up and down and around. It didn't find a crack that went to the top. Just disappointing seams that didn't want to be climbed. Disappointed, we had no other option than to place a bolted anchor and to go down. I got the power drill out of the small pack we carried along, and I began to drill a hole. I got about an inch in, and then it just stopped. Dead. The batteries had no more juice. We both probably yelled some explicatives and then laughed at ourselves. How were we getting out of this one? Welcome to episode seven of season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I am Luke Mihal from The Climbing Zine. And if you've been listening along to this season, you're probably gathering that this is all one cohesive story, kind of like we did uh, season one, um, season one, episodes one through 19, all told a cohesive story from American Climber. And with season two, we're uh, reading The Desert, my fifth climbing book. And I, I subtitled it A Dirtbag Climbing Book. Something I don't do enough is to shout out our social media channels. And I guess the reason I don't do that too much is we mainly just are active on Instagram the climbing zine on the gram that seems to be the best platform for photos and um, stories it really works well deleted the facebook page maybe uh, nine months ago or so facebook became a big time waster and i'm just not a fan of facebook and yes i'm aware that facebook owns instagram but uh, i think zuckerberg's dna is in facebook and not a fan of the zuckerberg I am also on LinkedIn. If anyone wants to connect with me, I'm under there, under my own name. And we got a Climbing Zine account that's kind of just getting started. We have a Twitter account, but we really do nothing about it. Should probably just delete that too. If you want to support this podcast and the Climbing Zine, the best way to do so is to check out your show notes and find that link. It's going to get you a small discount at our store, and you can pick up Dirtbag State of Mind merch. Books, zines, subscriptions, stickers, all kinds of goodies. Let's get into episode seven. As the Dub Creek wall shaped up, sending the superette crack became my singular goal. Eventually, after a year and a half, I tried this line more than any route I'd ever climbed before. Still, it wasn't coming together. I'd fall at the same spot over and over again at an offset finger lock with no decent feet. First row problems, for sure, but I was obsessed. I had to send this rig. My heart simply would not be content without it. I'd drag anyone I could over there, and at this point, maybe 20 people had invested their time into my project. I was even making a short film with my buddy Greg, a young and serious filmmaker who I'd met in Durango. Naturally, the superette crack made perfect fodder for the film. In the script of the film, which I wrote, I was trying to capture what the dirtbag life had meant to me in the form of poetry. There had been a lot of essays and a couple films that had declared the dirtbag was dead. In the end, it was hard to argue. Technology had changed the experience so much that it was almost unrecognizable to what it was even 10 years ago. Smartphones and social media infiltrated. Gone were the days of the lonesome climber, or at least the appearance of it. Sometimes I think loneliness feels worse now. When we're down and out in our lives, it's hard to look at Instagram. It looks like everyone is always having the time of their lives. 
But that's just the appearance. Life never looks like an Instagram feed. My poem was called Last Thoughts on the Dirtbag. It was in the lyrical style of Bob Dylan's Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie, a poem about the search for soul and God in America. Here's a taste of the poem. I was looking for something I could not find trapped in walls. So I started searching, started climbing walls. And then I was depressed and dreaming of the 60s like something was missing. I wanted Jack Kerouac. I wanted to bring him back. And I wanted to just pack up the rucksack and never, ever, ever look back. One day we were doing some filming on a Dean Potter climb called Salt Lake Special at the 4x4 wall. We met this character named Alan Karn. He just kind of came out of nowhere and he was at the wall all by himself. I love that about climbing. You never know what kind of character you'll meet on any given day. Alan was British, but lived in France. He name dropped some climbers, and of course, we had friends in common. He was wiry and short and overly enthused, which he had written all over him. He ended up camping with us that night, and the next day, my partner for climbing bailed, so he agreed to climb with me while Greg filmed. Meeting Alan at this time was God sent. He had been climbing for 40 years, starting when he was 15 on the gritstone cliffs of England. The son of a poor single mother, he would bike 40 miles to those cliffs that lay above Manchester. He learned to tie a bowline knot from the local library and climbed on a sailing rope using hip belays. When he really got into climbing, he was living on the dole, which provided about $20 a week. He and his comrades would sleep in caves and all other strange places, even bathrooms if it came to it. They were dark times, he told me. The good old days weren't always that good, he said. Alan and I synced up perfectly. We talked about Kerouac, about dirtbagging, and the climbs we wanted to climb. At 55 years old, he was still climbing 513, and he was a more skilled crack climber than I was. When he belayed me on the superette crack, he watched me climb, and then ever so gently offered me critique on my technique. I soon realized that the difference between success and failure was just a little bit of knowledge. Alan certainly had the intelligence part figured out in climbing. He was an athlete in his mid-50s who was still at the top of his game. It was a warm September day, and we were tired, but we wanted to get one last shot on the most photographed climb in Indian Creek, Scarface. The climb is photographed so often for good reason. A splitter crack framed on an arete with the reservoir in the background, and beyond that, both of the six shooters. Greg had just purchased a drone, and we sat in the parking lot, waiting for everyone to clear out from the wall. Though we were new to drones, we knew it would be a dick move to use one for filming when others were at the wall. Immediately, after a brief test run, I was unsure of this drone. The sound was annoying, and it seemed invasive. Plus, having a drone hover over you as you're climbing seemed dangerous. What if the battery died and it came crashing down on you? Or if it accidentally hit the wall and triggered a rockfall? Death by drone would certainly be a lame way to die. Still, I'd seen drone footage, and there was no denying it was beautiful. I was just seeing how the sausage was made. So with the last few rays of light, we tested out the drone. Alan would lead, and Greg launched the drone off above him, the drone hovering and making this crazy buzzing noise. All day long, I'd been talking to Alan and learning about him and where he'd come from. In the middle of the drone filming experience while he was climbing Scarface, he yelled down to me, Look at what climbing has come to. I used to climb in a swami belt and a hip belay. 
There was no sense of malice in his words. He was just calling it how it was. In fact, I couldn't believe how generous this guy was. I'd just met him the day before, and now he was a character in our film. In the end, the drone footage didn't turn out. Something wasn't right with the camera. And stylistically, I wasn't happy with it. A film called Last Thoughts in the Dirtbag shouldn't have new, fancy drone footage. Greg crafted the work beautifully, and Alan's presence in the film was perfectical. I went back to work on the Superette and implemented some of the nuances that Alan had suggested. They worked. The day I sent the climb, I actually messed up the crux sequence, but still managed to pull through. Some days, luck is just on your side. I let out a huge scream that reverberated across the canyon. I was relieved. But I still hadn't finished the climb. There was a short off-width section that guarded the anchors, and I climbed conservatively with trepidation for fear I'd mess it up and have to do it all over again. Although I'd just succeeded in climbing the hardest section of crack in my life, the important learning moment took place after that. The lesson was to be in the moment and to not celebrate anything before it's all over. I climbed that last remaining section and clipped into the anchors. The project was completed. I think to this day, it's still sitting there, awaiting a second ascent. I think somebody could probably come along and onsite it eventually. That's how these things go. One person's project is another person's warm up. One thing I've learned in climbing though, at least for myself, is that if I'm gonna have competitive urges, it's best to be competitive with myself. To demand that I try my absolute hardest, give my best, be in the moment, and never get up until the send, even if that doesn't come for another lifetime. This episode is sponsored by Osprey, a longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine. Osprey and The Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit Osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond, another longtime sponsor of The Climbing Zine. Black Diamond is all about climbing, skiing in the mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond not only has the hard goods you need for climbing, but also the apparel to go along with it. The forged denim jeans are perfect for desert climbing and exploring. And the Alpenglow hoodie layers are ideal for protecting you from the sun. To find out more, visit blackdiamondequipment.com. It was another dead end, but we shouldn't have been surprised. The desert had been so good to us these last few years. More first ascents than I could count. All types of sizes and lengths. We even established a line that went all the way to the rim. They were the types of days that make me believe in climbing. The golden age is always at hand. If not elsewhere, at least in the desert, it is. That day, it was just Dave and me. If there's any partner I've ever had for the desert that I was equal to in terms of abilities, it was Dave. That's not necessarily a reason to choose a partner. It's just how it was. 
I would have climbed with Dave on just about anything, even if we didn't check in at the same ability level. But we just happened to check in at the same level. We'd work the same projects together, and often one of us would send just before the other, or vice versa. To talk any more about Dave without describing his stoke would be a mistake. Other than his sense of character, his stoke is what defines him. It's the reason we call him 514 Gene. Not because he actually climbs 514, although I know he could if he wanted to. But the reason we call him 514 Gene is that was his Halloween costume one year. An 80s climber. He has a 514 level of stoke. And if 515 were around when he got the nickname, he would have been called 515 Gene. His call and our call can be heard in the desert in the form of Both Dave and I were far from stoked at this particular moment. This dream crack had dissipated into nothing. We'd have to drill an anchor and rappel down rather than taking this line all the way to the rim, as we'd hoped. We'd been working on this climb for a couple of days now. The first pitch, which we called the Diva, was a 40-meter masterpiece. A few finger stacks, but mostly thin hands for us. 0.75 number one Camelots. It was a dream and took virtually no cleaning. For years in Indian Creek, I'd embraced the communal nature of it. But the quiet days with just one or two partners when we explored the forgotten corners, these were my absolute favorite days of all time. For the last couple of years, there had been a lot of these days. In fact, my entire life was now planned around them. The Diva Crack was one of the finest. Five stars out of five, for sure. The day after establishing it, Dave free climbed the first pitch in perfect style, and he sent me up in the second pitch. The second pitch was a 50 or so foot chimney off width. It wasn't terribly difficult, probably 510. I belayed Dave up with hopes that we'd get one more pitch to the top of the formation, and we'd have a rim root, a rarity in this day and age in the cragging mecca that is the creek. Once Dave reached my perch, I climbed up and down and around and didn't find a crack that went to the top, just disappointing seams that didn't want to be climbed. Disappointed, we had no other option than to place a bolted anchor and to go back down. I got the power drill out of the small pack we'd carried along, and I began to drill a hole. I got about an inch in, and then it stopped. Dead. The batteries had no more juice. We both probably yelled some explicatives and then laughed at ourselves. How were we getting out of this one? We should have also had a hand drill, but we didn't. We scoped around some more and confirmed the notion that there were no natural anchors, no trees or big boulders. There were a couple cracks we could leave some cams in, but if there's one thing a climber hates to do, it's to leave behind cams. It's not just the value. There's something about a climber's pride that we don't want to leave them behind unless someone's life is on the line. And that was certainly not the case. We were alive and mostly happy. It was a stunning spring day. Blue skies, red rocks, the usual in the desert. Beautiful, but usual. No impending doom. I can't remember which one of us came up with the idea, but we ended up deciding just to downclimb the pitch. I rappelled down on a gear anchor and placed cams for Dave so that he could clip into them when he was downclimbing. I reached our original anchor and then put Dave on belay. I was thinking about how scary that probably was heading down a brand new off-width pitch in Indian Creek, sand and loose rock and all. Dave's feet peered over the edge first and sent down some debris. 
I looked down slightly so the rocks would hit my helmet and not my face, and then look back up. How you doing, brother? I asked him. He was fine. He wormed his way down the crack, dust now covering him from head to toe, and removed the cams one by one as he went. He clipped back into our anchor, and then we rappelled down the diva, back to this formation we were calling Beyonce's Balcony. Beyonce's Balcony was this perch about 35 feet off the ground, where the diva began. It was 20 feet long and probably 2 feet wide, and overlooked the six shooters in the vast desert that leads into Canyonlands. It was a glorious place to be. Though it was only mid-afternoon, we cracked beers. We'd earned them. And we sat around, basking in the awesomeness that is living in the moment in the desert. We were calling this wall the Beyonce Wall, thus the diva and the balcony, etc. Someday, I think there will be a study of how Americans name roots and how they corresponded with certain eras. In the beginning days of American climbing, the names seemed elegant, often just corresponding with the aspect of the wall. Take the northeast buttress of the higher cathedral in Yosemite. What a proper name. But at some point, like most likely when sport climbing came around, many routes had the most ridiculous names, like the types of phrases you'd hear in dick jokes and such. My point here is that the male chauvinism dominated the climbing scene for a while, and still does in many ways, especially amongst those bolting new routes. The other side of this is you don't have many walls or routes named after strong, independent women, and that's why we wanted a Beyonce wall. In the process of our finds and developing these new walls, they started to catch on in popularity. It was all word of mouth and almost entirely friends of friends. But at this point, after climbing Indian Creek for nearly two decades, almost everyone was a friend of a friend. That's not completely true though, because Indian Creek was absolutely exploding in popularity, and so was climbing in general. Most started like I did back in the day, in a gym, and then they were unleashed into the wild by the hundreds. Every season, the place got more and more popular, and every season, there were more climbers there. My paranoia about the new walls being overcrowded was probably completely unfounded. That first ascent paranoia that some of us new rooters suffer from. There was no denying I was greedy. I wanted all the first ascents I could get. Still, the reality is that hundreds of climbers had already been to our secret wall, and 99.9% never put up any new routes. Once I had sent my super rat project, my hunger only grew. Sure, it was silly. This medium of climbing that had become my favorite form of climbing it wasn't quite as silly as bouldering, but there was a joy and genius and silly in play. I just wanted to play more and explore more and find things that had never been done. The kicker of this new wall was that it was almost a two-mile hike to the base, and of course, there was no trail. Dane got on board and showed that he was more than willing to do the work plotting out a trail, trundling rocks, and brushing holds and cracks. Tim was trained in building trails, and he carefully analyzed each and every step, not just thinking about this step, but 10, 20, 100 steps in the future. We had seen many, many climber-created trails over the years, and we were determined to make ours a valiant effort. There was one major problem to our trail. An hour into the hike, there was a layer of chinley, a decomposing band of almost purple-colored rock that felt like walking on ball bearings. We began to refer to this as the death runnel. The steepness and looseness of this runnel defied logic. It was just low angle enough to climb it, but steep enough that whenever a rock was dislodged, it was sure to come pummeling down at you at a fast rate. Climbing up the death runnel was always the crux of the day, 
We'd be an hour into our hike, sweating profusely, awash in the wonder of the Red Rock world. Half thinking, this is awesome. Half thinking, this is stupid. And then we'd come across this damn thing. We always looked around to see if there was a better way. But we couldn't find anything safer or more stable. So we just went up the runnel. One time Tim knocked a rock down on Dane, or Dane knocked a rock down on Tim. I can't remember. But I do remember their thousand-mile stare afterwards. And us thinking that no one was ever going to come out to our wall. That they had to routinely hike up and down the runnel. Once we arrived at the wall after an hour or an hour and a half of hiking, a certain sort of peace and joy would overcome us. The view, like many views of the desert, was like church. A view so glorious of mountains back in the distance, and canyon upon canyon upon canyon, one after another in canyonlands, tucked into one another. A view that was beyond lifetimes of exploring. A view that contained past civilizations and eternal hope, and at the same time despair, depending on how much food, water, and shelter one had. After that setting, the prospectors and us came alive, and we sought out the cracks we wanted to climb. There were a few that were obvious gems, a crack that climbed in a cave and then exited the cave right towards heaven, a headwall crack that went for nearly 100 feet, a dihedral that went for 200. It was as if we were old-school miners who had discovered gold. We sought out what was the low-hanging fruit first, Mostly hand cracks are cracks so perfect from bottom to top that they simply had to be climbed right there and there. We were so far from the highway, we seldom saw any cars, mostly just those of jeepers, peepers, and hikers trying to access the canyon lands. We had discovered something. We had escaped time in our own way. But of course, time is the ultimate motivator for the climber. Because someday, we'll all run out of time, climbs, and breath. That was episode seven of season two. A little update on that Super X crack. I check Mountain Project every once in a while because I did put that wall on Mountain Project. And it's seen a bunch of activity. And um, I connected with Mason Earl over social media at one point, And he, in fact, did on-site it. And anyone is familiar with Mason Earl and his climbs knows that he's probably ticked off uh, more hard climbs in Indian Creek than just about anyone. So... It was an honor for him to on-site it, and um, anyone who follows him on social media also might know that he's um, got some pretty debilitating um, illnesses right now, so he's not climbing, but we're all hoping and praying for Mason and that he's going to eventually recover and come back to on-site in our projects. Music for this episode is from Devin Dabney. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And this is Luke Mehal signing out from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Peace.